Good morning. My name is Vincent Hoppe. I'm the pastor here at Grace in Peace. Uh, if this is your first time, I'd love to say hi and welcome you to, to what we're doing here um, and what, what the vision is. This Easter morning, it is a big deal. It's a big deal in Christianity. Without it, Christmas doesn't matter. It means that this is a new day. When Jesus went out of the tomb, it meant that this was a new period in history. Jews of that day, they were waiting for this cataclysmic event that would signal the dawning of a new age, a new world. No longer would it be going down into the grave. It would be coming up out of the grave and into new life. It would be a new creation. Everything, the, fallen, the curse of the fallen world, the curse of sin, everyone's sin, would be reversed. The dominance and rule of sin and death in this world would be undone. Even trying to get life apart from God would end. And what the book of John is showing us is showing that God, in visiting his people and raising one, Lazarus, from the dead, and two, Jesus coming out of the grave, is the great reversal for the world and for us personally. It's both of those things. John's gospel is written to highlight that Jesus in Jesus, in his coming, a new world, a new way of doing things has started. And it's not just to be mentally assented to or to simply be reported, but to be believed. That means taking it into your person, integrating it into your entire life. It means doing as what Thomas had said, and that is declaring about Jesus that he is Lord and God. Internet will drop out and kill us. There we go. Pow. <laughs> so this, it's important news, okay? So if you think about Jesus' resurrection, it is news. It is not news like you hear, like there's a new spaghetti place coming on, you know, downtown or something like It's not news like that. It's news that there's an F5 tornado headed for your house. You had better duck and cover. It's news like that. It is news that will change your life. It is not news that you can get a saying, yeah, big whoop. All right, And John says that's why he's written their gospel, his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, that he's the son of God, God himself in the flesh coming to visit, ripping open heaven and earth to get to you because he loves you. And that's the stamp of approval that we all need. Okay, This is news, good news. And he doesn't, mean knowing, he doesn't mean that you need to know just enough facts to pass a test. Nor is John telling a simple story to motivate us to morality. He's not just trying to get you to act good. He's not just trying to get you to act good. 
He wants you to pass from death to life by believing in the one who did it. So here's my challenge, though, that I am stuck with. Here it is. Uh, recent scholars have been saying this. The purpose and the personality of the power and the power that was with Jesus continues so that today he's risen in living presence and possibility. What they're saying is, is that he's the purpose, the purpose of Jesus lives on, but he's still physically dead. Basically, Jesus teaches us to be moral people, that we just kind of embrace this resurrection and we say, ooh, that's good enough for us. So the challenge, though, is taking these facts and help us experience those facts so that it rearranges all of our lives. Many of us are okay with the possibility of Jesus rising again. Cool, whatever. But what does it have to do with me? See, we're not quite sure why it all matters. And that's the difference between knowing facts and experiencing those facts. It is one thing to explain and describe honey It's another thing to have tasted it. It is one thing to explain the power of the ocean using some graphs and some photos. It is another thing to have stood in front of a wave that is icy cold, and as it crashes into you, it takes your breath away and knocks you off your feet. It is one thing to talk about how deep and wide the Grand Canyon is. It is quite another thing to stand on its ledge and be afraid that you're going to be swallowed up whole through one small little tiny misstep. There's a difference. It is one thing to know that we will all die. It is another thing to experience it, to have lost loved ones. It is one thing to ascend to the physical resurrection of Jesus It is quite another thing to experience it, to live it, to breathe it, to sing out until your lungs hurt and your throat is dry, to allow it to shape everything in your life. Those are two different things. But in order to get to Resurrection Sunday, we had to go through death. And I for a while there, had the facts about death in my head. I kind of assumed that. We're all going to die. But death came knocking on my door. The experience of death came knocking on my door on a very warm February afternoon in 2011. I just put my kids down. They're sleeping. There's dust in the air because it's New Mexico. And a quick rap happens on my door. I open the door and there's a police officer. And he tells me, he asks me, are you Vincent Hoppy? And I go, yes. Is your father Harold Fred Hoppy Jr.? Yes. And he says, sorry to inform you, your father died this afternoon. And that's when I knew death. That's when I knew death. Because it hit me. It hit me hard. And I don't have the greatest relationship with my dad. We had a broken relationship. It was terrible. He was physically and emotionally abusive to us, but yet 
It felt like someone had stabbed me in the heart and I fell over and my wife had to pick me up as I was just a lump, crying. I'm a grown man crying on the floor. Why? Because then I experienced death. But the truth was, when I came, when I ended up going over to his town, I went into his trailer, I noticed that my dad hadn't just experienced physical death, but there was a spiritual death that was going on that he was living in most of his life. I noticed for once how much he hoarded. I noticed, remembered all the broken relationships. He hadn't talked to my older brother in 12 years. broken relationships. Then I also noticed his addiction. He was dying of liver disease. I opened his refrigerator and there was empty wine bottles and beer cans in there. All while he's taking his liver medication. You see, he was living death. He was living in death the entire time. And then every little cover-up that he had to show that he wasn't dead, to show that he had life, whether it be gardening or keeping his truck nice or saying hi to the neighbor, was just another sign of that death. And so he was dead. And my thing is that we're all dead. But the question is, why does it matter? Jesus says he's the resurrection and the life. And here's the deal. It means that without a literal resurrection... It shouldn't matter. I shouldn't be upset at my dad dying. It is the natural course of the world. People say, death is just, you know, part of life. No, no. Death is not part of life. Death is the end of life. I mean, just put that in there, okay? So it's not the circle of life. Elton John got it wrong. All right? Sorry for you Lion King fans. You see, a literal resurrection means that everything we do matters. It means that there is a better way. And this better way includes the physical world because Jesus came in a body. It means God didn't give up on it. And that we will, and it does not mean, this is what it does not mean. It does not mean that God's going to give up on it and that we're just going to float away after it all burns up. No, the resurrection's physical. And this earth, he cares about it and he's going to renew it. So this is about a better life. But let's consider the flip side. What if Jesus didn't raise for, rise from the dead? Well, for the Christian who places his, their identity in the fact that Jesus died for them, Paul says, your faith is in vain. Basically, it would, better, it would be better to simply eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow, tomorrow we will actually die. Big deal. But it also means that everything else that Jesus said is basically bunk. Who cares? I mean, you know, love God, love neighbor, love your enemy. Who really cares? Why? Because look where it got Jesus, dead and in the ground, decomposing. Life then is basically morality. That's for the Christian. But what about the irreligious, those who maybe have objections to the faith? I would offer to say that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Freud is right. Religion is just an evolutionary holdover to get us to work together morally so we don't freeze and die. It gave humanity hope just long enough to keep them going. 
After you come to the realization that you are now freed from the constraints of human religion, you can now, as Nietzsche put it, live the will to power, which means you can have the freedom to do what you want and live guilt-free, which gave rise to something called existentialism, which believed that because there was no ultimate meaning in life, the world isn't headed in some utopian direction, then you are free to find whatever meaning you decide. Beyond that, then anything you do is in order to make your mark, or as Steve Jobs put it, put a dent in the universe. You live, you live to leave a legacy, some people will say, to leave the world a better place for your children. You're free to do you, be the true you, you know, whoever the heck that may be. In the end, you have to struggle with the fact that your child will probably not remember everything about you and your legacy. Your grandchildren will remember even less, and by and large, you'll be forgotten into the realm of nothingness three generations later. But of course, now there's this guy named Raymond Kurzweil who's working for Google, and he's like, we can download all your memories into a computer so that you can live on into eternity. Of course, then, you'll need countless software and hardware updates, and you have to contend with computer viruses, malware, and hackers. But then, in the end, we all have to also wrestle with a scientific community that, the, that believes that the Earth will someday be swallowed up when the sun supernovas, unless we could figure out a way to escape the Earth on spaceships. In which case, then we, can only have to con- we, we, we have to only contend with colliding black holes that can create enough gravity that will swallow the entirety of the universe. Or there's also the possibility of alien life forms a la Predator and Independence Day. All right? Now that sounds hopeful. <laughs> hmm. Maybe we would love to be better off just taking advice from Kesha. Let's make the most of the night like we're going to die young. If Jesus raised from the dead, Kesha's the best philosopher. You see, without a literal resurrection, you only have wishful thinking. You only have sentiment. You only have moralism. You do not have real life. You're still dead. Belief in the facts about the resurrection without experience breeds legalism, meaning that you're more concerned with passing a test about a set of theological assertions. Experience of the resurrection without belief in the facts That breeds superficial moralism, meaning you're more concerned with moral actions, giving you the basis to judge others and look down your nose on them. But here's the deal. If your premise is that Jesus' resurrection doesn't matter or it didn't happen, but at every turn, at every turn, you are bothered by death, you are bothered by despair, you are bothered by your sin, then why don't you consider a different premise? Why don't you consider a different premise? To first century Christians, Jesus was a big deal in his rising again. This teaches us why the resurrection ought to be a big deal today. So we're going to talk about the facts and the experience. The facts. So Lazarus, we read about Lazarus being dead for four days. At one point, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has gone to sleep. To which they were then all saying, well, what do you mean? Like, if he's just gone to sleep, big deal. Why do we need to go? He'll wake again. He goes, no, he's dead. Okay? And at this time, they would know what death meant. Not only that, when he shows up, Mary and Martha are weeping, and they're really sad. And the entire town is sad over Lazarus' death. Then they go to the tomb. He's like, he's been in there four days. Here's the deal. 
okay? If you've been in a tomb for four days, after, you know, and he, you didn't die, and after, afterward you, you, you had nothing to eat for four days, you were deathly and gravely ill for four days, and you were in a tomb, a little cave, how in the world are you suddenly going to be able to walk out one day? If you weren't dead when they put you in, chances are you were dead somewhere in between, okay? So he was really dead, not only that, his death was real, and we can know that the facts of his death are real, is because they name names. Basically, this is fact checker. You want to go check it? This guy, he lives in this town. Go check him. They can do that. Not only that, Martha's fearing the odor of death. The odor of death. He's going to stink. Beyond that, they also wrap Lazarus in linens. And he came out of the tomb in the linens, death linens. Not like, I hope he gets better, linens. No, like he's like, like somehow he got a gash on his arm. No, they were wrapping up his body. It was like a mummy coming out, you know, to which you probably scream and shout. But that's where, where he was. The Pharisees then, upon hearing this, not only wanted to put Lazarus in a permanent tomb, they wanted to put Jesus there too. They knew exactly what death was. So Lazarus was really dead. He was dead, dead. But then he was also risen to life. Mary says that she is waiting for the day and the end when he will rise. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, which meant that he is the future colliding into the present at that time. It meant life wasn't just some far off thing that happens then. It meant that life happened now and that there is hope for people living now. You don't have to live in death. Jesus Christ says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Real life, life as it was meant to be, can happen now in Jesus. And it's everything we've been waiting for. And God rips open heaven and earth to come to get to you, not 30 years from now when you die or a thousand years when he comes again. No, he came then. Lazarus would die physically again, but as Jesus says, those who believe in him, though he die, shall live forever. Though he die, shall live forever. Let's also take a look at Jesus' death because that's what we covered. Roman soldiers were the ones who put him to death. They crucified him. They were masters in execution. So when they say that he's like, these two break their legs. This guy, what do we do with him? I don't know. He's dead. If you have been fighting in battlefields for years and centuries, and then you also have to kill these little tiny brigands who jump out and want to waylay your, your, little, your, your troop as they're going down the road, you know what a dead person looks like because you've made them dead. Okay? And so for a Roman soldier to make a person dead and make Jesus dead, they're like, yeah, he's dead. Do we really have to break, you know, do any, break his legs? Nah, we don't need to suffocate him. Let's just make sure he's dead. Let's poke him. So they poke him on the side with a spear and they pierce his side. If the crucifixion didn't kill him, piercing his side most certainly would have killed him. But he was dead. Beyond that, then they put him into a tomb after being flogged and crucified by masters of torture. And then they wrap him in 75 pounds of linens, ointments, and herbs. Okay? 
And then three days later, somehow he gets out, you know? Somehow he's risen again. Here's the deal. I struggle to, you know, lift 75 pounds uh, any, at any time, okay? My, my five-year-old, my, my eight-year-old child is probably like 70 pounds, and I'm like complaining that my back hurts. Okay, after you've been beaten and crucified, what are the chances that even after three days that you're going to be able to get up with 75 pounds of stuff weighing you down? Not very good. Beyond that, someone might say, oh, come on. You know, he could have gotten help. Someone else could have gotten They had Roman guards. Roman guards. The fact is, he's probably dead. Beyond that, people are saying, ah, this could have been a story that's made up. C.S. Lewis, the renowned literary scholar, says that using a genre the way the gospel writers did, if it was all fiction, and they wrote down all these names and all these places, and this is what they did and the times that they went, they would be, in, they would be 1,500 years ahead of their time. That literary genre would not have existed for another 1,500 years. So either these gospel writers were writing and recording what actually happened, that he actually died, and he actually rose again, or they're geniuses. We should follow them anyway. No. Um, That's the thing. The chief witnesses also were the apostles. And throughout the gospels, they write ridiculous stuff about them. They didn't get it. They were slow to believe. They even did dumb stuff like cutting off people's ears. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Right? And so why would, if they were just making up stories and they were like writing about themselves, wouldn't you make yourself awesome? Like, and there was Peter with rippling muscles. You know, that's what you would think that they would write. But no, they wrote like, Peter, complete dunderhead, cut it off someone's ear. You know, and that's what the things that they were writing. Peter, not really fast, running. We got that one. You know, and so if they were making it up, wouldn't they want to cast themselves as likable characters? Unless it's true. Unless it's true. You know, then we also have two guards at the tomb. If they had let someone in to get them, they would have been killed. Also, the first witnesses were women whose witness was inadmissible in court. They couldn't even... Because of the world the way it was, women could not be a witness in court. And so if you're making this up, who would you have to be your first witness when you wrote it? Like, so a king came and noticed that Jesus was gone. Now, that's the way you would write it, but instead what you ended up getting is like, women noticed it. Women are the first witnesses. People are like, come on, women? And not only that, it's like multiple women. And there's multiple witnesses. Chances are, he's not making it up. Chuck Colson put this rather bluntly the other day. or I saw this written the other day. Chuck Colson was one of the 12 men who was implicated in the Watergate scandal. And he wrote that for 12 uneducated men to keep alive for 40 years to their torturous death, some beheaded, some crucified upside down, some beaten to death, and keep that lie, maybe it was true, but... Whereas the Watergate lie couldn't last 40 hours between 12 well-educated, high-functioning leaders. So let's observe the facts. We have to consider that the tomb was empty. We have to consider that Jesus did rise in a body. Thomas is like, I need to see it. 
Jesus shows up eight days later to Thomas, like, check it. That's what happened. You know, at some point, we all have to face this reality. We all have to face the reality that Jesus' body was a body. Assuredly, it was different in some ways, but it was a body. He ended up eating fish. He let others touch him. It wasn't a Tupac hologram. Okay? We all have, at some points, have to face the reality that we're going to die too, though. And we need to decide if we're going to continue down the path of death or we're going to follow the way of Jesus the one who rose to new life. We are dead, and we need new life. And the facts of your death, your death right now, are evident if you just have eyes to see. You ever feel guilty? You did something wrong? You ever feel shame? You're afraid that someone's going to find you out for real. And so what you do is you're always hamming it up, making yourself look like the best person ever, You're just trying to find life. That's evidence of your death. Think about also your cynicism. You're always suspicious of everyone's motives. You're always believing everyone is conspiring against you. You're always thinking that people are thinking about you. That's death. Not everyone is thinking about you all the time. You are not the center of the universe. Not everyone is conspiring against you. There is not a conspiracy against you. Think about the relational trouble that you feel. You think you always need to win the fight, you always need to be right, you always need to get your way, otherwise you're going to die. Think about the ways that we constantly build up our self-righteousness, the belief that I'm not that bad as long as I'm better than this guy. Think about the times that we're always trying to say, I'm moral enough. I didn't kill anybody. It's all death. Think about the constant struggle to prove that you've got your stuff together. You're the best parent. Your house is always clean. Your kids never mouth off in the grocery store. They never have to be dragged by your leg down the cereal aisle because they wanted the cocoa puffs. (laughs) That's the thing. We're always trying to show that we have our stuff together, but it's evidence that you're dead. And you need new life. All indications point to the fact that we're dead spiritually. If you're a Christian, you're learning how to live life in Christ. So put it this way. When my dad physically died, when my dad physically died, his physical death finally caught up to the spiritual death. In Christianity, if you trust in Jesus... His physical death counts as your physical death. And you grow spiritually. And someday, your physical body is going to catch up to your spiritual side. It's reversed. You know, the the simple facts of the resurrection, this bodily resurrection, means your sexual failures don't get the last word. It means your sins as a parent don't ultimately define you. It means that what you're most ashamed of and fearful of letting be found out can be found out and you'll still live. You won't die. It means that it won't ultimately get you. It doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. 
Jesus does. The simple facts of Christianity are that we're created by God to get life from him. Humanity rebelled. We rebelled. We try to live life or find life apart from God. That is sin. But Jesus comes to take away the sin of the world by dying the death we should have died. And he is risen as a deposit, a down payment of what is coming, the real life. And you can have it now in Jesus. Those are the facts. But what about the experience? G.K. Chesterton wrote, Let your faith be less like a theory and more like a love affair. If you get the facts and then you let it get inside you, you let it do surgery on your person, it'll change you. And in order to do that, you will need to spend more time reflecting on this resurrection. You'll need to spend more time reflecting on his death and your death. You'll need to spend time reflecting on God's love for you in Jesus. Not because you got it all together, but that while you were a sinner, Jesus came and died for sinners and people who confess that they have sin. Jesus says to Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. You know, I didn't really experience that resurrection life in its full, and I, start, and, I've, and I really started reflecting on it until I let people into the shame of my father's death. No one ever knew that my dad was an alcoholic until it was way late. No one ever knew that my dad was addicted to pornography. No one ever knew that he uh, was hoarding. No one ever knew those things. And that was one of the most shameful things in my life, and so I always hid it. And do you know what resurrection life actually looked like for me? When I had to go clean up that trailer where my dad was hoarding, do you know what I did? The scariest thing in the world. I invited people to help me. They would see everything I was scared of and I was ashamed of for years. They would see it all. My messy childhood that I wasn't all put together, they would see that. And so I had two of my best friends who I ended up working with take the day off, come with me, and move everything in a day out of his trailer. All the hoarding. There was nasty stuff in there. And then also, I invited, I, my sister-in-law said this, and so this is how I know, know that God was working in my life and that I was experiencing resurrection life. She said, I'm a nurse, I can clean it. And I'm like, I'm going to let you clean up my dad's guts? His blood and guts and bowels, that's terrible. And do you know what, it, what happened? God worked. You want to know why? Because instead of saying, I can do it myself, the way of death, I said, please. I don't know how it came out. I said, please. That's what resurrection life, that's what it, experiencing it means. You let people in the mess. So Lazarus, calm, uh, with the story of Lazarus, Jesus calms the weeping and the experience of Martha by telling her, I'm the resurrection and the life. But he doesn't say that death is like, like just trivial. He says, that he, it, it, this text says, in the shortest one, it says he wept. Jesus wept. Shortest text in the little scripture, scripture citation in the entire Bible. Jesus wept because he loved him. And the weeping it talks about that was he was snorting with indignation. So it meant that it was the angry, messed up, weeping snort is what it was. It was the, the, you're like, you can't control it. And that's the way Jesus felt. 
It means that we have a reason to hate death. And you could feel it. You feel the guttural experience of hating death. But it also means we have reason to hope. Because Jesus wouldn't let the one he loved die. And it means that he won't let you die. He won't let you go apart from him. Lazarus experienced the resurrection literally. Where else do we see this? What about with Jesus? We see the resurrection. We see people sprinting and running. They're getting it into them. We also see 12 guys, normal fishermen, broke, uneducated, going to the ends of the earth. And Thomas was one of them. Thomas says, I need to see the facts. And when he sees it, he exclaims, my Lord and my God. He closes the open bracket on John's gospel, which opens with the word God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And what does he say? He says that Jesus in the flesh is my Lord and my God. He is God become flesh. And he gave all who believe the right to become children of God. And life as a child is what he experienced. Thomas then, there are stories of him bringing the gospel to India. Where he would presumably die. The twelve die gruesome deaths. Why? Because they knew that the God of the universe loved them and wouldn't let them go. That death was only a door to full life. When you experience the empty tomb, you know that the world is not empty. It's full of life. This time between the now, the resurrection of Jesus now, and the not yet, that coming resurrection, death only becomes a servant and is no longer a master. So what will you experience? You will experience that confessing your sin isn't going to kill you. You'll experience that the thing that you're so ashamed of can't define you even when others know it. You will experience that those people who you can't stand to be around, their opinion can't touch you. You'll experience that your job isn't pointless, but is building toward the kingdom. You'll experience wanting to think the worst of someone else and realize that God doesn't think the same of you. You'll experience letting go of control, competency, the need to be high-functioning, acting like you got it all together. And you'll be able to confess that you are not the Christ. You'll experience that losing your life, denying yourself, surrendering yourself to the good of others, which is the kingdom of God, is true life. You will know and you will experience the unstoppable, never-ending, always and forever love of Jesus transforming you and changing you because it got to you in Jesus. No matter how depressed you get, how much you hate yourself, Jesus thinks you're to die for. This is the resurrection life in the present. But until we die, we'll experience life and it will hurt like hell at times. Death is only a doorway, an entry into life. Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory? Marjorie Williams and the Velveteen Rabbit explains this really well. It's a children's story. And so for those of us who are dense, like me, we should be able to get it. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. 
It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with you, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, the rabbit asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and you get loose, loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to those people who don't understand. You see, God loves you and Jesus dying on the cross and rising again is the sign of that love. Not because you have it all together, because in fact you're a mess, but because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you, and nothing will stop him from loving you, from making you his. He tore open heaven and earth, and he died for you in your place. Your sin will not stop him. Death will not stop him from getting to you. How in the world do you let you experience that? You confess that you don't have it all together that you need a savior. You open up the chest and you say, do your best. You stand in front of the train of God's love and let it rip you to shreds. That's how you experience it. On Resurrection Sunday, the true sun puts to flight darkness, sin, and death. The facts and the experience of new life come by faith. And here we have a symbol of God's undying love for you, a feast in faith, that one day we will feast with him, that his life has become our life because our death has become his death. Christ rose that we may walk in newness of life, and this new life is a feast of love on him. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, you do love us not because of what we have done, or even who we are, but you make us into who we are by your gracious love in Jesus. And now as we partake of your supper, Lord, I pray that we may take it with glad and sincere hearts, knowing your goodness, your love. And I pray that we would rejoice knowing that the feast is coming, that life happens now, that the feast that is coming has broken into the present in Jesus Christ and is a signpost here at this table. Lord, we have life in you. Help us to confess that we need you the way we need bread, the way we need drink. We ask and we pray these things in Christ's name.